Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is Jim Stein, your host for New Books and Mathematics. Our guest today is Julian Havel, the author of Curves for the Curious. You don't have to be mathematically curious to appreciate Julian's talent for weaving mathematics and history together, but mathematical curiosity in a year or two of calculus will greatly add to your enjoyment of it. This is not your father's or grandfather's standard collection of conic sections, with perhaps a few curves of higher degree thrown in. This is a collection of elegant, unusual, and mathematically significant curves chosen by a connoisseur and beautifully presented for your delectation. You may recognize a few old favorites. The catenary and the normal curve come to mind, but many of the others will be new to you, as they were to me. Julian, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jim. I'm Delighted to be here. It's novel to be involved in a podcast rather than just listening to one. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Doug. Okay, Julian, what motivated you to write this book? Curves are an intrinsically important tool in many areas of mathematics and its applications. Over the years, it's been inevitable that through my teaching, I've dealt with many of them and built a reservoir of them their properties and and applications. Uh, I thought that I would like to share a selection of these with people who read popular maths books. Happily, PUP thought this a good idea, and so I've selected 10 curves, this number restricted by book length. Um, You know, one of the questions that I had when reading your book is I was curious what criterion or criteria did you use in selecting the curves you included in the book? Well, first, they should have an interesting story and be in some way important. Second, that they occupy the ordinary XY plane. So no curves which require three dimensions, for example, the helix, or objects that are called curves but which exist in some abstract space, uh, for example, abstract metric space. Okay, so those are very reasonable criteria, I think. And um, I believe this book can be read at a number of different levels. It's an intriguing collection of tales, even if you never dive in and do the math. Thank you. Uh, My aim is always to provide enough mathematics for the mathematically inclined reader but also enough context and history for those for whom the detail is less important than the story. I believe that a mathematical idea becomes much more enjoyable when it's placed in context, given a a time and a place and the names of those associated with it. I, I recall at school reaching for an encyclopedia, the internet was decades away, when some important result was taught us. Who was Pythagoras? Who was Dumoivre? Who was Lagrange? Where did they live and when? Many readers of popular maths books think the same way, 
And we authors of this genre should do our best to anticipate and answer such questions. Yeah, I've certainly find, found that to be the case when I do the writing. I usually, when I get questions from people, it's not so much on the mathematics itself, but they're interested in the characters because the characters play a part in not, a, not just the history of math, but the history of the world. And I think you do an excellent job of, uh, of bringing these stories to light. Thank you very much. I, I agree. It's the, the person as well as their achievements that's important. Okay, well, let's get into the curves themselves. And I'd just like to say one thing for the listeners. Even though this is an audio podcast, the book has pictures. So you'll see all the curves. And, and I think that's, yeah. <laughs> I think that's important. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, Julian, what is the essence of the fundamental theorem for plane curves? That curvature determines the curve. Roughly, but intuitively, if we take a piece of graph paper and decide on a starting point, we can theoretically generate a curve in two obvious ways. The first is to be given pairs of x and corresponding y coordinates and plot these point by point. Then join up the dots, or better still, be given more points to fill the gaps. We shall never complete the curve but we will have a very good sense of what it looks like. The second way is to be given a direction in which we should guide the pencil at the first point and let this infinitesimally determine the next point on the curve. Again, a theoretical but nonetheless attractive idea. What is less obvious is that we can also generate the curve by being told how much it bends at each point. That is, its curvature at the first and each infinitesimally close subsequent point. You can imagine that differential calculus is a central tool in making all of this rigorous. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, um, I liked about your book is that you start out with, you start out and you say, this is my favorite curve, and you give it. And the Euler spiral is the one that you yeah. chose, and I'm just curious as to why it is your favorite curve. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I think it's extremely elegant, intriguingly defined, very useful, and it carries the name of my favorite mathematician. Uh, actually, it carries many names, but I argue in the book that it is Euler who is most naturally and fundamentally associated with it. Um, exactly. Uh, you know, uh, you give several definitions for it, but is there one that um, uh, we could sort of convey to the listeners without having to have necessarily pencil and paper? Because one of the things is you draw a picture and you can see that it winds more tightly as it progresses. Yes, it's called many names for differing reasons. Uh, the French scientist... Alfred Cornu studied it in the late 19th century. From this re-emergence of the curve, his name became attached to it. A little later, the Italian mathematician Ernesto Cesaro somewhat romantically named it the clothoid, after the mythical character Clotho, the spinner among the three fates, who spins the thread of human life by wrapping it around a spindle. 
who said that mathematics is not romantic. The, the curves, a uh, curve has other names too. I could continue with those if you'd like. Uh, no, um, what I'd like to do is you discuss it in connection with something called the cantilever problem. Maybe it's pronounced differently in British. Um, <laughs> what is the cantilever problem and what, and maybe it's cantilever, and what contributions did the Bernoulli's very famous names in mathematics and Euler make towards its solution? Well, they, uh, yeah, we, we call it a cantilever over here. Uh, the cantilever problem, take a thin horizontal beam of negligible mass, fix it at one end and hang a weight at the other. The beam will bend downwards into a curve. But what curve? This is the cantilever problem. And the answer is that the curve is called the elastica. It was James Bernoulli, one of the Bernoulli mathematical dynasty, who first provided the answer. It was in 1694. The reverse question is, what shape must a fixed beam originally have so that when a weight is placed at the other end, it becomes straight? The answer to that shape is the central part of the Euler spiral. So with the cantilever problem, the straight beam is curved downwards. Uh, with the Euler spiral solution, the beam of negligible mass is bent upwards in a false way, but then the weight at the end pulls it down so that it's a horizontal straight beam. The answer is it should be shaped as an upward or the central part of an upward Euler spiral. Um. One of the things that you did is you pointed out an application of the Euler's, a possible application of the Euler's spiral to railroad trains. Yes, quite surprising if you're not a railway enthusiast. But in this context, some American railway enthusiasts may know it as the Arima spiral. Actually, it's useful whenever a straight line is connected to a curved line. In terms of trains... If we are in a railway carriage with a train traveling at constant speed on a straight length of track, our velocity is constant, and so our acceleration is zero. This may seem obvious, but if we are traveling at constant speed on, say, a circular length of track in our railway carriage, there is an acceleration. Acceleration is the rate of change of velocity. And even though our speed is constant, our velocity is not, since we are constantly changing direction. Now imagine that the train's route has it moving in a straight line and then turning 90 degrees in a quarter circle. We are traveling in our carriage still at constant speed along that straight length of track. And then we meet the quarter circle. Even though we are continuing to travel at that constant speed, the acceleration kicks in and we experience what is known as a jerk. Uh, this is undesirable and at speed uncomfortable. Replace the quarter circle with the central part of the Euler spiral, the curvature of which increases from zero and is proportional to the curves and hence the track's length and the tr transition is much smoother. Hence, it is an example of a transition curve. 
That's really nice. Um, we're about to switch to what is possibly the least intuitive curve in your book, and one that's the most difficult to picture because I don't think you can picture it. What exactly is the Weierstrass curve, and what is the history of its development? <laughs> yes, right. It's the first everywhere continuous but nowhere differentiable curve. That means that even though it clearly exists, it cannot be drawn, because at no point does the pencil have a direction in which to move. In 1872, the great German mathematician Karl Weierstrass came up with it. Before this, curves were thought to be a rather nice, well-behaved set of mathematical entities. Some may have a sharp point or two, or perhaps even an infinite number of them spaced in some regular manner, but between these, the curve was nice. For example, take a V-shape with its single sharp point, or the sine graph with all of the sections below the x-axis reflected in it to create a sort of bumpy road. They're awkward. But Weierstrass's construction has every point a sharp point. Since it is continuous everywhere, surely we think we can place the pencil on the paper and draw it. We can't. The pencil point never has a direction in which to go. That's, that's really, you know, when I first saw the Weierstrass curve, or I shouldn't say see the Weierstrass curve, but I was <laughs> yeah, first yeah. exposed to the Weierstrass curve, yeah. um, I was fascinated by it. And it turns out that there were, uh, that the uh, actual construction of the Weierstrass curve sort of improved with time um, in the sense that uh, when the treatment that you have in your book is, uh, is I think, possibly the most difficult section to follow in the book because it's, it's pretty lengthy and involves some very deep properties. Well, not deep properties, but deep computations with sines and cosines. But the Weierstrass curve usually shows up in courses in analysis. And for the benefit of readers who might be interested in tracking it down a little further, there's a very simple Weierstrass curve that's given in Rudin's book, Principles of Mathematical Analysis, that's, I think, easier to understand intuitively than the one that Weierstrass originally came up with. Yes, I, I, I was tempted to, to ignore the Weierstrass uh, proof, but I wanted this historical context, and I, I wanted the readers to see that even though I quite agree it, it, it is a difficult piece of mathematics, uh, it does use only high school mathematical ideas, and I think it's of interest to see how a master like Weierstrass could use these very elementary ideas in such a complex way to prove something for the first time. What role did the development of the Weierstrass curve play in the rigorous definition of limit? Uh, calculus, particularly differential calculus, was at that time on anything but a firm foundation. The idea of a limit, the foundation stone on which calculus is built, was yet to be properly dealt with. And this curve, and others that followed it, as you've mentioned, provided great impetus to mathematicians to sort out what exactly continuity and differentiability meant. 
And this means the rigorization of what is meant by the infinite, both big and small, was prioritized and eventually dealt with. The conceptual idea of a limit had to be maneuvered into a mathematically rigorous concept. With this, the subject area of real analysis came into existence. As I mentioned at the, uh, during the introduction, one of the things that intrigued me about your book was that there were a number of curves that maybe I'd heard of just a little bit, but I'd never really seen before. And the first one that appeared in your book were Bézier curves. Who was Pierre Bézier and what were his contributions? In the 1960s, he was head of design at the Renault Motor Company in France. This was way before the time of computer-aided design and computer-aided manufacture. But at that time, computers were beginning to find their way into some manufacturing processes, including cars. Until then, cars were designed using small clay models, which were then laboriously developed into life-size models. Car design was as much a craft as an art or science. With a computer, albeit a not very powerful computer, Bézier had the idea that the contours and surfaces themselves of a car could be modeled using a novel and very flexible approach. If we stay with curves, each portion of a contour could be approximated by a parabola or a cubic curve, which seems a bit naive. Yet the approach he took allowed for dynamic flexibility. Literally, moving virtual handles attached to the curve allowed it to be adapted to the required shape. It was a very, very novel idea, and Bézier was nervous that his novel approach would not be taken seriously by his colleagues. So he invented a mathematics professor whom he named Wansim Doan, who was meant to be responsible for the idea. Bézier might be doubted, but the non-existent but eminent professor, not so. In doing so, uh, Bézier was just following the Bourbaki uh, initiative. Yeah, I was, <laughs> I was about to bring that up. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, who is, was Bourbaki was another invented mathematician. Uh, in fact, at least he existed as a real person, uh, unlike Bézier's invention. Uh, Bourbaki was a Napoleonic general. But in the mid-1930s, a group of mainly French mathematicians adopted the name. Their aim and the aim of their successors was to reformulate the whole of mathematics into a rigorous and cohesive body. A vast task that will never be finished, but... A number of books have been published by the organization under the name Nicolas Bourbaki. Uh, the initiative has its supporters and its critics. Whatever any individual's view of the initiative, it has been influential in restructuring and rigorizing 20th and 21st century mathematics. Who was Robin Forrest and what was his contributions to Bézier Curves? Well, he, he plays a bit part, but a very, very important bit part. He amended Bézier's approach and therefore made the process of curve approximation that much easier and 
easier for computers to be programmed. It is this form we use today, but it's a bit difficult to go into the details without a whiteboard and pen. Fair enough. Um, uh, one of the curves that I'm pretty sure our listeners will be familiar with that was in your book is you did choose to uh, illustrate one of the conic sections. And what is the significance of the rectangular hyperbola? Well, it caused a singular difficulty in the history of quadrature. Quadrature was the name given to what we would now call finding an area associated with a curve, finding the area of a circle or of an ellipse, for example. If we draw the curve with the usual X and Y axes, the question is usually about the area between it and the X or the Y axis, integration in modern terms. By 1640, Fermat of the last theorem fame had found a way of finding the area under the general curve with equation y equals x to the power n for all n other than minus 1. The curve y equals x to the minus 1 or y equals 1 over x is the rectangular hyperbola. They couldn't find the area under it and filling in this gap naturally became the priority. And for those students who have taken uh, uh, taken introductory calculus, one of the things is when you first come across the basic integration of x to the nth, it says for every n except n not equal to minus 1. And then they learn about logarithms. And logarithms naturally come up in the uh, problem of finding the area under the rectangular hyperbola. But how do logarithms facilitate computation? Why were they so important in the development of mathematics? Jim, I know that you remember the pre-calculator days. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I remember the slide rule days. I, not as not far back as the abacus days. No, I'm, I'm with you there. Before the mid-1970s, and, and certainly in the UK into the 1980s, Logarithms were the only means of calculation for those of us who didn't own a mainframe computer. Not only did I calculate with logarithms as, as a boy, but also as an undergraduate, also as a graduate. And when I started teaching at a high school in the UK in 1975, I taught how to use logarithms as a calculating tool. Of course, there are an infinite number of possible logarithms, distinguished now by their bases, but the two most fundamental of them are the one with the base, the important number E, and the other with base, the number 10. Using the basic laws of logarithms, which change multiplication to addition, division to subtraction, and exponentiation to multiplication, what would otherwise be an extremely involved calculation becomes one which is a degree simpler. Any base would do for this, but base 10 was standard. Logarithms make calculation easier because they reduce the level of complication by one degree. They're invented by the Scottish Baron John Napier and brought to the world through his book, Descriptio. That was in 1614. I know all this because I wrote a book about him. 
they were quickly adapted by an English mathematician called Henry Briggs. And this form to base 10 were the mainstay of calculation until the electronic calculator replaced them. 1614 to the mid-1970s, no improvement, no alteration to the idea, or the first part of the adapted idea of Napier's logarithms. But actually, Napier's original approach to his logarithms was nothing like the approach that is taken today. For example, his logarithms had no base. The logarithm of one was not zero, and they did not turn multiplication into addition. They turned an equality between ratios to an equality between two subtractions. With our modern computational aids, the original reason for the invention of logarithms has disappeared. And so would logarithms have disappeared, but for the rectangular hyperbola. Their use as the answer to the area under the rectangular hyperbola, where the base is E, gives them, or gave them, a parallel existence, and one which surely will be with us for as long as mathematics involves calculus. The rectangular hyperbola brought this about. Um, I have to insert here that I always felt that the prime, uh, the primary uh, importance of logarithms was one of the properties that you mentioned, that it transforms exponentiation into multiplication, because I don't see how you can reasonably solve exponential equations without logarithms. Absolutely right. You'd have to do some sort of iterative process. I was wondering whether or not you'd say that, because that was literally the only way that I could think of doing it. Yeah. <laughs> so it's yep. nice to have it backed up. Um, moving on a little, what is the quadratrix of Hippias? Excuse me if I've mispronounced <laughs> one or both of those words. You've mispronounced neither, Jim. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, from an okay. English standpoint. <laughs> from an English standpoint, anyway. You recently interviewed David Richardson about his new book, which describes the great classical problems of ancient Greek geometry. Uh, trisecting the angle and squaring the circle are two of them, and perhaps the listeners would like to listen to that podcast to have much more detail filled in. Julian, thank you so much, because nobody in my history of seven years of doing podcasts <laughs> has ever promoted one of my podcasts on a <laughs> podcast. Thank you so much. Uh, the check is you. in the mail. <laughs> okay. Where are we? Are we, are we doing the... Trisecting the angle and squaring the circle are two of these problems. The only allowed tools were a straight edge and a compass. The compass is assumed to be a, a non-collapsible type. That is, once opened, it will stay opened to the extent, to that extent, until we cause it to change. The straight edge must be precisely that. Unlike a ruler, it must have no markings at all on it. Under such restrictions, we now know that these famous constructions are impossible. You can't trisect any angle. You can't square the circle, that is, construct a, a square the side of which is the circumference of a circle, just using those tools. Back then, the impossibility was suspected, but not proved. Relaxing the rules a little makes the impossible possible. For example... Having just one mark on the straight edge makes the trisection of any angle possible. 
just using that straight edge with one mark and our compass. Another way to relax the rules is to be allowed another tool. Hippias of Elis, who lived around 400 BC, came up with one such tool in the form of what is known as a mechanical curve. It's called the Quadratrix of Hippias. Using this curve, the circle could be squared and any angle trisected. It is called a mechanical curve because its natural definition is in terms of a mechanical process. In this case, consider a horizontal square with its left-hand edge pivoted at its left-hand bottom corner. You got it, Jim? Yeah? And it's, <laughs> got it. Got it. And Look it's in the book, upper. people. You'll get a better picture <laughs> of it. Okay. You've got a square. The left-hand edge is pivoted at the left-hand bottom corner. And the upper edge is able to move vertically downwards. Left-hand side can rotate about the bottom corner. The top edge can go vertically downwards, just shifting in a parallel fashion. Start the left-hand edge rotating clockwise, and at the same time, the upper edge begins its motion of moving down. The point of intersection of these two lines traces the curve. It starts at the top left-hand corner, naturally, and if we get the speeds right, it ends at a point on the square's bottom edge. Actually, I think perhaps surprisingly for your listeners, my research indicates that the quadratrix was the third curve to be specifically studied after the straight line and the circle. It predates the other conic sections by about half a century. That's Actually, pretty surprising. Yeah, yeah, it is. It rather surprised me, and I didn't believe it at first, but I have looked into it quite a bit, and certainly the conic sections about 50 or 60 years later, that's definitely the case. You know, and some of those were brought about for trying to solve these problems. You know, my Actually, admiration not- for the Greek mathematicians is boundless simply because yeah. I don't understand how they did this without pencil and paper. You know, they had such so few writing implements and they did all this brilliant stuff. It's just amazing. It was more amazing because they invented the idea of rigor. It was not common. Uh, it was the Greeks who came up with the idea of being mathematical. You know, they, they inherited nothing. Uh, in terms of rigorous, proper mathematical process. And as you say, they didn't really have the tools. But my goodness me, they had the intellect and they... Boy, you they better had the, believe it, yeah. That, that. Actually, when the mathematical fog has dissipated, the quadratrix of Hippias is nothing other than part of the cotangent function. <laughs> I'd never seen it described like that. Thank you so much. Makes it a lot easier for me to visualize. Thank you. I hope the li- other listeners too. Yeah, I think probably most of them are that sophisticated if they're listening to this. Well, actually, we hope that there are a bunch of non-sophisticated ones who are tempted to plunge in. Yeah, I, I hope so. It's, I mean, as we said earlier, you don't have to get into all the maths. The, the idea of these sort of books is the maths is there if you want it. But if you don't want it, you just turn the page and get the story and the general gist of things. 
Here's something, if we jump ahead two millennia, we get to a really interesting curve that I think I learned about when I was in high school, the space-filling curves. What are oh, they? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, we'll go back. Uh, back. Back to the Greeks. The first two definitions in book one of Euclid's Elements, this great, great mathematics book, the first two definitions are of a point and a line. He defined a point is that which has no part, and a line is a breadthless, breadthless length. In terms of dimension, we could rephrase this as a point is zero-dimensional, and a line is one-dimensional. So curves are one-dimensional. The plane is two-dimensional. So a curve fits into a plane with plenty of space left over. That is until space-filling curves were discovered. That is, an infinite curve, which is clearly one-dimensional, can be made to occupy all of the two-dimensional plane. Uh, curves have no width, remember. With this fact, the very idea of dimension seemed in peril. It was Georg Cantor, who first seems to have promoted the idea of this confusion of dimension. He came up with a way of showing that every point on an infinite straight line could be identified with a unique point in the infinite plane, exhausting the plane. Yet, to, to specify a point in a plane, you know, like two independent coordinates were needed. How can, on the one hand, two coordinates be needed, but on the other, just one will suffice. Cantor's correspondent, Richard Decadent, isolated the resolution of this problem. By all means, a line and a plane could be put into this one-to-one -one correspondence with each other, but that correspondence could not be continuous. That is, Nearby points on the line do not necessarily correspond to nearby points in the plane. But with every answer, there arises a question. In this case, is there a correspondence between a line and the whole of a plane, which is continuous, but necessarily not one-to-one? -one? If so, we can use this to construct the associated curve in the plane, since that is all curves are. Correspondences between points on a line, the x-coordinates, and points on a plane, the x and y-coordinates. Such a curve would be space-filling, because it would take up the whole plane. The Italian Gustav Piano came up with the first such correspondence, but he had no thought of manufacturing the curve from this. It was to be the great German mathematician, David Hilbert, who came up with the first such curve, constructed as a curve, and called the Hilbert curve. From Piano's construction, his curve can also be constructed. From this, the new subject of topological dimension theory came into being, and the concept of dimension was made clear. 
Um, not to me. Um, <laughs> I had, Sorry about uh, that. I, I, I got a book on topological dimension theory when I was in graduate school, read about yeah. three pages into it, and realized I was never going to understand it, <laughs> and said, this is not an area of mathematics for yeah, me. not my either. No. <laughs> um, moving on to a very interesting, uh, a, a very interesting geometric construction. What is the Rouleau triangle? Yeah. Uh, a circle has constant width. We call it its diameter. An ellipse does not have constant width. If we ask the question, are there curves other than a circle that have constant width? The first answer is yes, and it's the Rillo triangle. And the complete answer is that there are an infinite number of other such curves. To construct the Rillo triangle, start with an equilateral triangle, place a compass point at one vertex, and strike an arc joining the two opposite vertices. Do this for the other two vertices, erase the triangle, and the curve that is left is the Rillo triangle. To have a, a clear idea of what is meant by width, select a point on a curve, draw the tangent there, and move this tangent in a parallel fashion through the curve to its other side. The distance moved is the width of the curve in that direction. And a curve of constant width will have the same value for every direction. If you look at the Rillo triangle carefully, you see that that indeed is the case. As I've said, there are many more examples of them constructed in various ways. The construction is named after its originator, the engineer-cum-scientist, Franz Rouleau. You know, one of the things that I found interesting about your book was that things such as the Rouleau triangle, which I'd seen discussed in, in other rather simplistic contexts, it arose in Richard Feynman's analysis of the Challenger disaster. Yes, it did. Uh, well, no doubt. Listeners will need no reminding of that terrible tragedy of 1986 when the space shuttle Challenger exploded a matter of seconds into its launch. The subsequent presidential commission had Feynman as one of its members. And at one point, he was investigating a possible contributing factor to the disaster. Were the booster engines of the shuttle, the cylinders, they were supposed to be, you know, they're stuck on the bottom of the shuttle. The important point being that these booster rockets, which were attached to the lower part of the shuttle, were ejected to land in the sea, were recovered, repaired, and reused. Was the recycled booster fit for reuse was what Feynman was looking at. Feynman asked for the data which NASA used and which convinced them of the booster's cylindrical shape, and was told that the test that was applied was to measure its width in three directions, 60 degrees apart. If the measurements were within tolerance the same, then the booster rocket was considered to be cylindrical. Feynman was pointing out that the Rillo Triangle provided an excellent example of why this is an inadequate process. Yeah, that was fascinating. Um, yeah. 
Uh, anyway, now on to one of the most famous curves in your book. What is the normal curve and why is it so important? Yeah. Uh, well, we might be looking at a podcast of record length. If <laughs> I was this question fully. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. In very short, most things are average and few extreme. And the normal curve models this. Think of heights of people, blood pressure levels, uh, volumes of milk production from cows, summer temperatures, levels, etc., etc. What it does not itself model, it approximates with acceptable accuracy, whether it is modeling a continuous data uh, over which it's naturally defined or discrete data. Actually, modeling discrete data is how it was discovered. Um, can you trace a little of the history of the discovery of the normal curve? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think its history is particularly interesting. Oh, uh, I agree. Yeah. It, it naturally splits into three parts. The first part, uh, in 1721, a rather colorful member of the Royal Society posed a question of one of the founding fathers of probability theory, Abraham de Waals. Now, de Waals' theorem is the standard result of complex numbers in high school mathematics. But de Waals made significant contributions to probability theory. Now, as to the colorful character, Jim, is it okay if I read a short paragraph from the book or Absolutely. not? Absolutely. Sure. Okay, thank you. Okay, I, I'm now going to describe the uh, gentleman who posed the question. The Scotsman Sir Alexander Cumming, second baronet of Coulter, was at one time both a member of the Scottish Bar and a captain in the Russian army, at another the self-proclaimed and accepted king of the Cherokee nation, who enjoyed an audience with King George II at Windsor Castle, accompanied by seven Cherokee chiefs, at another a defrauder of the American settlers of large sums of money, then an alchemist hoping to transmit base metals into gold, penultimately an inmate of London's debtor's prison of the fleet, and finally a poor brother of the charitable trust of the Charterhouse, wherein he died aged 85. He was also a member of the Royal Society until, that is, he was ejected from the fellowship for non-payment of its annual fee, at the time the only prerequisite for the aristocracy to have claim to the prestigious FRS appellation. The society's transactions are silent with regard to any scientific contributions from Cumming. So there he was. And Cumming, though, posed a question, and he posed it to the great Abraham de Moivre. And this question was on binomial probability. Toss a fair coin an even number of times. Now, we expect it to come up N heads and N tails, technically. But, of course, the actual number of F heads could be any number from 2N to naught. The question was, what is the expected deviation of the number of heads achieved from the number of heads expected, N? So that's a random variable. The Moivre provided a solution to the problem, which involved the binomial coefficient. I, I hope listeners understand this bit. N choose half N. 
which for large n was impossible to calculate. De Moivre made the point by choosing n is a 10,000. And he said, it would be quite impossible, even though I've solved the problem. I, I, I've given an answer, but I haven't given a solution because you can't evaluate the numbers in the formula I, get, I proved. Through an amount of ingenious and, and difficult mathematics, he came up with an approximation. He reported that it took him about an hour to achieve this, and I can assure you, having gone through the mathematics, if that's true, it's incredibly impressive. The approximation involved the expression, here we go, open a bracket, 1 minus 1 over n, close the bracket, to the power n. As n gets bigger, we know, and they knew, that this tends to this famous number, well, it was reciprocal of 1 over e. So 1 minus 1 over n to the n approaches 1 over e as n gets bigger. And that expression was in his formula. From this, a great deal of calculation. And then the function e to the minus x squared appeared. And his interest in the approximation was the area under it. e to the minus x squared is the fundamental equation of the normal curve. And that, I believe, is the first time that it came into existence. It, the normal curve had emerged in what is now one of the uses of the normal distribution. So one of the applications you, you're teaching the normal distribution at high school is you say, all right, there's a binomial distribution. We can't calculate things. Let's use the normal distribution as an approximation to it, one of the many applications of the normal distribution. But in fact, that approximation to a binomial was how it came about. The second part of the story is connected with its use as a measurement of error. The astronomers were the first scientists to approach the management of observational errors, a study which started with Galileo. Through the centuries, many scientists considered how to harness error measurement. Uh, Laplace for one, Gauss for another. Small errors are more likely than big errors or no errors, a hint of the normal curve. Through what might justly be considered rather dodgy mathematics, Gauss's approach involved the normal curve. And through this, he famously predicted the position in the heavens of the re-emergence of Ceres. It was thought it might be a planet, but it was shown to be an asteroid. By the way, Gauss was then 24 years old, and this re-emergence of Ceres, using the normal curve to measure errors, made his name. You know, one of the things, as you were reading that passage, I was thinking that that passage ought to be posted in <clears throat> somewhere and somebody say, remind you of any of the people in Washington these days? <laughs> <laughs> as, a, as a foreigner, I better not get involved in that. I don't put off some readers. Well, fortunately, there's still freedom of speech. For how long, I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> I'd like to finish off by talking about elliptic curves. What is an elliptic curve, and are there some simple examples? Right. Um, here we go. The definition of an elliptic curve varies with the person who's asked, and it's a bit involved. First, it's not an ellipse, although it is a curve. If we think of a cubic curve from high school, 
we'll be thinking of an equation which has y on the left-hand side and a cubic in x on the right-hand side. An elliptic curve has just this equation, but with a y squared on the left-hand side. Now, this precludes some forms of the curve, but suits the purpose for which I needed the curve. There is a further reduction in the number of such curves when we assume that the cubic in x can be what's called depressed. That is, by a change of variable, the x squared part of it can be made to disappear. Now, this was a simplification that goes back to the 16th century and to the Italian Cardano. So we have an equation with y squared on the left and a cubic in x on the right, but without the x squared term. And we're nearly there. Now we need the three coefficients on the right-hand side that are left to be such that the curve does not degenerate. There's a simple condition for this. Once it's applied, at this stage, the curve has just two physical forms. A sort of capital omega turn 90 degrees and a sort of normal curve turn 90 degrees together with a disconnected oval near it. These curves have reflective symmetry in the x-axis. Now a bit more abstract. We need to add to it a point at infinity. We can think of this intuitively as a point simultaneously infinitely up and infinitely down the y-axis, or we can be rigorous and replace the x-y plane by the projective plane. It's a matter of taste. It makes no difference to the use of the curve. Uh, there we have it. You know, you, you just a moment ago, you were saying the use of the curve. And one of the things that's fascinating today is all the developments that concern cryptography. How do elliptic curves relate to cryptography? Yes. Well, I can tell you they are absolutely central to the most powerful form of cryptography that we have at the moment. Uh, the reason that you can use your credit card with, or the reason that the banks are happy if you use your credit card and will reimburse you if, if there's fraudulent uh, activity with it, is that your transactions are encoded using elliptic curves. And I, I'm going to try then and explain without a whiteboard the essence, the essentials of this. Okay. With the structure of, of the elliptic curve and with its point at infinity that I've just described, it's possible to define an arithmetic on points on the curve. Take any two points on the curve and draw a straight line through them. This line will intersect the curve at a single third point because that's the way the shape it is. We might think that this point will be defined as the sum of the two points. So take two points anywhere on the curve, join them with a line, it will intersect in the third point. And it's natural to say, okay, if you want to define the sum of the two points, let this third point be it. But that does not yield a sensible arithmetic. Reflect that third point of intersection in the x-axis, and I remind you that it's symmetric about the x-axis. Reflect that point of intersection in the x-axis, and we will have another point on the curve. This is defined to be the sum of those first two points. Take two points on the curve, join them by a line, 
it hits the curve at a third point, reflect that in the x-axis, and that is the sum. All of the arithmetic works out in terms of both symbols and also in terms of the geometric intersection of straight lines. Now, if those two points, perhaps you've thought of this, if those two points happen to be vertically above one another, the sum is that point at infinity, which is why we need it. If they happen to be the same point you're adding together, we draw the tangent of the curve at that point and proceed. When I said that the arithmetic worked out, I meant, for example, if for a point P on the curve, we wish to calculate 4P, algebraically, we could do this by summing P plus 3P or 2P plus 2P, which all seems obvious in terms of symbols. But each of these alternatives has the geometric form of intersection of lines and tangents with the curve. And these intersections generate the same answer, different though the process is. To make this useful in cryptography, we need to take some point on the elliptic curve and add it to itself many times. And this would involve inevitable and dangerous rounding errors which might corrupt the message. To avoid this, we move from the x and y values being real numbers to them being positive integers reduced modulus a prime number p. That is, the coefficients of the elliptic curve are integers reduced modulo p, and any arithmetic operation on these points on the curve is reduced modulo p. Whatever number results from an arithmetic operation, just keep knocking out p until that number is less than p. The curve we had that's continuous becomes a set of points in the plane. The addition mentioned earlier all works out fine using the formulae that naturally arise from intersecting the curve with a line. So points on this discrete curve exist if the x-coordinate is an integer less than the prime p, and the y-coordinate is an integer less than the prime p, which is also a square less than the prime p. For any given p, the finished product is a set of points in the plane with a horizontal axis of symmetry, and that's all you have to worry about. Add them and take multiples of them using the formulae that we generated in the continuous case, all works out. With all of this, we can generate an example of a computational infeasibility known as the discrete logarithm problem. Take a point P on a discrete elliptic curve and using these formulae, add it to itself a large number of times to finish with what we write as NP. By using a doubling process, in effect writing N in binary, we can achieve this surprisingly quickly, even for very, very large N. So we can calculate NP on an elliptic curve very quickly, even though N may well have a couple of hundred digits. Currently, though, with all of the ingredients carefully chosen, if someone knows P and we tell them NP, it is infeasible to determine the value of N. 
since the shortcut which is available to us in our computation of NP is not available to them. From this belief, protocols have been invented to pass electronic information between parties, which, even though it's not secure from interception, is secure from decryption. Yeah, that's that. You know, it's so interesting how mathematics. I, I can still remember. I wrote in one of my books that um, uh, in Hardy, you know, in Hardy's a mathematician's apology, said he'd worked on useless problems his entire yeah. life, and it turns out that basically a lot of what happens every day to everybody involves what Hardy did. And this is, you know, this is this is similar. Julian, it's been a pleasure. And uh, I usually conclude by asking if you have any other projects on the horizon in the future about which we can podcast. Oh, well, I hope so. Yeah, I do have. I mean, if you're uh, writing not... a cookbook, forget it. But uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, if I write a cookbook, nobody will buy it. I should ask my wife. <laughs> the, uh, no, I'm, I am working on a project. I, I've approached uh, Princeton with it uh, and uh, I, I can... It's 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 this sort of it, it comes from this last book and its working title is a mathematical gallimaufry. Okay, I seem to remember what that word was, uh, but unfortunately, I'm getting old and I don't recall <laughs> immediately. But give me a little while and it will come back to me because that's the way memory and old people work. Julian, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you very much for your time. Take care. Bye bye.